Well, good morning, church. I'm going to continue, of course, in the, in the book of Galatians. And this morning, I'm going to cover the remainder of chapter 4, which I'll read in a moment. Um, but just by way of introduction, we're about two-thirds of the way through Paul's letter to the church in the Roman province of Galatia, a church that more or less has been steamrolled by a group of zealots known as the Judaizers who have come to impose upon the church a message of the gospel plus. The gospel plus this. And they're, what they're speaking to specifically is that they're saying to the believers that in order to truly be saved, one must add to their faith works of the flesh, specifically circumcision, um, also as well particular observances, specifically Passover. In other words, that the gospel in and of itself is not sufficient enough for salvation. But yes, salvation requires something a little bit more from you. And so Paul has just been beautifully and systematically and theologically kind of breaking down their argument in the, the first portion of this letter and undoing this false gospel message that has been working against the hearts of the people and been working against the true gospel. And as he has been breaking down in his argument, at the same time what he's doing is he's building within them what is truly the gospel message. And as I set out on this series at the beginning, I said that this too is my hope, that, that I would remind us and that we would be reminded, church, I don't think we can ever be reminded enough of what the gospel really is and means and has accomplished for us. There will never be a day. In fact, I would imagine that into eternity, as Christ forever stands as the mediator on our behalf eternally, that we will be reminded of that gospel message of what he has done. And our worship unto him, and our, as we sang, our joy in his presence and life in his presence will be in a realization of what he did on earth for mankind. And so I want to just continue to present to our hearts, this is what the gospel is. And as we do that, how many of you realize that when you ingest truth, you dispel error, right? As we take the truth in, we are simultaneously rejecting that which is a lie, that which is not of Christ Jesus. And so we can't have the gospel enough. We can't ingest the gospel enough. The psalmist says in, in, the, in that whole Psalm 119, there's a portion where the psalmist says this, that through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore, I hate every false way. As understanding is built, error is rejected. And then he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Brothers and sisters, knowledge of the light, ingestion of truth, drives out darkness in our hearts and in our minds. And at its very core, what is darkness? Or what is error? It's sin, is it not? It's that which has not come to the conformity of Christ Jesus. This is what still remains within us. So what I don't want us to do is just read Galatians 
solely through an old covenant and a new covenant lens because there's so much more for us to actually apply and understand for ourselves. Because when, what, what, what I want to just speak of as I begin before I read chapter 4 is this. Is that as we read Galatians, and as we understand the issue of the church at, at its very core in Paul's heart, what Paul is really dealing with is that their turning away from the true gospel to the false gospel was really a matter of sin. That's really what it is. Yes, it's unbelief. Yes, it's adding to. But at its very core, the essence in the hearts of the believers was sin. Why? Because it's a rejection of what God had revealed. It was a willful turning away and accepting something that isn't the true gospel. And then as sin so often does, it leads to idolatry because it elevates something to a place of prominence in our hearts or minds where God has not intended it to be. And so the Galatian church, they were making something primary in matters of justification and righteousness that God had not said was primary, that was counter to what God had put before them. And how many times, church, do we do this ourselves? And do we know that also when we make something primary that isn't, that too is a sin? And I was thinking about this. If they did this with the law, something that was given by God and instituted by God to lead them to righteousness, in its very core, it was the law was right and good, right? If they did this with the law, elevating it to a place, how much more? Are we guilty of this same offense, church? Because in our own hearts, what we do is, is, is we, we pursue willfully the desires of our flesh. We pursue sinfulness from time to time, from day to day. Right? And so all this is just to say that, man, we desperately need the gospel ourselves. We need it preached to us every day. And we need the Spirit of God, and this is my prayer for us, that the Spirit of God would, would plant the truth of the gospel deep, that it would bear fruit in our life. And it isn't to say that it isn't bearing fruit in your lives. I know that it is. This is a, a mature church who loves truth, who holds fast to it, who pursues it. I'm just saying that there's more to take hold of, and there's greater fruit to bear. And so we need this. We need this. And I was trying to think of just what is, what is the turning in our own hearts that sometimes we deal with. And again, I think it's easy for us to just look at it as a matter of the law for Galatians. But again, that's why I wanted to just take a moment and identify that it was, it was sin in their hearts really is what it was. What's the sin in our hearts? What do we easily turn to and turn away from what is true that the gospel has taught to us? And that the gospel speaks. And, and I was thinking that we put our faith sometimes and we're, we, are, we are guilty of adding to our faith. We'll put our faith into the gospel of greed from time to time. In the gospel of lust. In the false gospel of gluttony in excess. The gospel of leisure. The gospel of self-indulgence. Self-importance materialism, on and on and on. 
These are false gospels, church, that we turn to in our own hearts. And so I was thinking, we're no different than the Galatians. Our addition is just something different. Theirs was the law, ours is something else. You see what I'm saying? And then I was thinking this too, but here's the reality for us, brothers and sisters, is that mankind's heart has always been inclined this way, to worship the false. It's always been that way. I was reading this week, just in my own personal time, and in the Old Testament, reading through Deuteronomy, and I came to the portion where the Lord establishes His law with His people, and I was thinking about this fact that God knew the inclination of man's heart, because He says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, that as they're preparing to go into the land and to take the land, He says, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, them being the people of the land. Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them, that you do not inquire about their gods, the Lord says to his people. In other words, he's saying, don't follow a way that is other than what I had specified. And then he says this, everything that I have commanded you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. And it was almost like the Lord knew that in our hearts that this is what the sinful heart does. It wants to add to the gospel, and it wants to take away from the gospel. And then I would begin to think that, you know, really, there's ultimately only two ways of life. There is sin, and there is righteousness. When we reduce it down to its bare essential, life is either righteousness or it is sin. This is why we desperately need the gospel, brothers and sisters. And I think that, that this, while it is not Paul's primary emphasis in the text this morning, I think that, that we can deduce from it that it was also in his heart, just this inclination towards sinfulness. And so having said all that Paul has said thus far, and remember, I think Rick said it last week, it's a letter, right? And, 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 and I think I might have mentioned like it's, tough to break letters into chunks from time to time. And so it's good to remember that Paul has just been writing a thought. You know, this is from his heart. And having said all that he has said now in regards to how justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ and how faith supersedes works because it was established by God with Abraham before the law came to Moses. We remember that. So therefore, the covenant with Abraham supersedes the law of Moses and that it came first. And that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a child of Abraham, like Abraham whose faith counted him as righteous. Now our faith, through our faith in Christ, we are a child of Abraham. And as a child, we are therefore an heir and a beneficiary to the blessing promised to Abraham by God. And so Paul now has said all of that that I just summarized, and he's going to take his logic all the way now to its final conclusion, and he's going to assert this, that the result of all of that that I just said is a particular life. And that particular life is a life that is free. 
It's a life of freedom, brothers and sisters. Freedom is the result of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, to say it another way, is a message of freedom. And now continuing with the story of Abraham, Paul's going to use the story of Sarah and Hagar. Is it Hagar or Hagar? Hagar was the elephant, right? Hagar or... Oh, Barb. Oh, I went to the wrong one. Oh, no, Hagar, Hagar was the pants. Weren't there men's pants from Mervyn's, like Dockers? I don't know what it is. It's Hagar. <laughs> Rick's like, enough of your quips. It's Hagar. Get on with it. So he's going to use the story to show that the children of Abraham by way of Sarah are not only God's true people by faith, but they are children of freedom and not of slavery. And this is going to be Paul's point. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4, and I'm going to read the remainder beginning in chapter, sorry, beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to read on through to verse 1 of chapter 5, and it will be very clear as to why. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Verse 21 Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? A little bit of sarcasm from Paul. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise, just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Father, we receive your word today. And we ask, Lord, that it would bear great fruit in our hearts this morning. Lord, dispel the error from our hearts and replace it, Lord, with righteousness, with truth. Lord, with with that which is from you. Father, this morning we receive today this message of freedom. And we remind ourselves of our true identity in Christ, that we are children of the free. Lord, that your gospel has truly set us free. And we ask, Lord, that we would walk now in greater degrees of freedom under the glory of your name. Amen. And so throughout his entire letter thus far, Paul has been presenting his argument by using contrasts, each making a point of the same argument, essentially. One is a way of life, is his point in one contrast, and the other, of course, is the way of death. He's talked about faith and works, we've heard, right? Faith and works, law and grace, flesh and spirit, Servants and sons, as Rick spoke on last week, law and promise, sin and righteousness, slave or free, old covenant, new covenant, and now this morning, he's going to present three more contrasts, Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, the Jerusalem which is from above, and the earthly Jerusalem. And he's put together this picture, church, thus far. Two families, two sons, representing two covenants, two cities, and two families representing two types of people, all with the purpose of answering this question, to whom do you belong? Church, this morning, who do you belong to? Whose are you? And the theology here is magnificent. Paul, he's a man of the Torah, right? He's a man learned in the law. He perceives this greater truth to be understood in the story of Sarah and Hagar. And we don't have time to read it today, but we'll just kind of pull from it what we want to. Two women, Sarah and Hagar, representing two different bloodlines of humanity and two different covenants, grace and law, spirit and flesh. Listen to the contrasts now of the two women of Sarah and Hagar. Hagar's son Ishmael, Paul says in verse 23, was born according to the flesh. Whereas Isaac was born according to the spirit, he says in verse 29. Ishmael's birth was marked by works, one of human effort, whereas Isaac was marked by faith. And we find this story recorded in Genesis chapter 16. This is where it it presents itself, where Sarah, the Lord has promised to Abraham many children, and we know that Sarah was old at the time. And what does Sarah do? But she laughs when she hears of the promise of God, that from her will come many more. And it's interesting when you read Genesis chapter 16, and it says that she's taken upon herself in a sense to do the work of the Lord to fulfill the promise of God. And getting along in years and in her unbelief or disbelief of the promise of God, what does she decide to do? She she says, the Lord hasn't given me a child. 
and I'm continuing to get older and older. So she gives to Abraham her servant. And, 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 and with her servant, Hagar, Ishmael is born. And so Paul is seeing this and he's understanding it. And he is seeing and understanding how it was a literal work of the flesh, wasn't it? It was the work of the flesh in procreation. And then he looks at Isaac and Sarah, and he sees where it's recorded in Genesis chapter 18. It says that Sarah was 99 years old, and it says that the way of women had ceased to be with her. She was beyond the physical ability to have children, it records in Genesis. Brothers and sisters, the birth of Isaac was a literal miracle, a work of the Spirit of God to fulfill the promise that he had made with Abraham. Isaac was a miracle. Isaac was literally of the spirit, whereas Ishmael was of the flesh. And then Paul goes on, and he identifies in verse 25 that that Hagar represents Sinai, where the law was given to Israel as a sign that they were God's people, and that that her children now are the people of Israel, blinded to the truth and held captive under the law, enslaved to the law. That's how Paul specifies the people of Israel. But Sarah represents the Jerusalem above, and her children are the new covenant people of God. So therefore, according to Paul's logic, Hagar represents the law. Whereas Sarah represents grace. And the result of all of this church is that Hagar, who herself was a slave, bore Ishmael into slavery. See, in that time, if you were a slave and you had a child, that child became a slave. And so Paul is understanding this and he's seeing this in terms of God's greater purpose and God's greater story of redemption in humanity. But Sarah, who was free, bore Isaac into freedom. One is man-centric, representing man's efforts and man's strategy, while the other is God-centric, originating from God, executed by God, and, and carried along by God himself. Two different stories representing two different peoples. We get this, right? This is clear. And let me just point this out. There is no question in Paul's mind as to whose we are. Twice in four verses, he is quick to state that this is who we are. First, in verse 28, he says, Now you, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And then again in verse 31, We are not of the slave, but of the free woman. So listen then to Paul's logic, church. Carrying out his argument all the way through, he says that if we are saved by faith, then we are children of Abraham, who was the first to be called righteous through faith. And if we are Abraham's children, then we're heirs of the promised blessing, that from Abraham would come the blessing to the nations. And if by Sarah, who was also a part of that promise to Abraham, then we are by nature children of freedom. And so all of this now has been systematically laid out in order to bring us to this one ultimate conclusion. If this is who you are, then verse 1 of chapter 5, then stand 
firm in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Are you hearing me this morning, church? Stand firm in the liberty with which Christ has made you free. If all of this is true, which he has proven again and again and again and again and again, not just to them, but to us, if this is true, then this is the result. Stand firm in the freedom of Christ. And so this brings me now back full circle to what I was saying in the beginning. There's just two ways of life, church. There is life and death, sin and righteousness, slavery and freedom, and everything that is not of Christ is slavery and leads to death. I read um, one writer this week just as I was studying and preparing for this morning. He, he stated it like this, which I thought was helpful. He says, this is why we cannot be saved through any other religion except for Christianity. The other religions such as Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or Mormonism or fill in the other ism are all slave religions. The same may even be said of versions of Christianity like Roman Catholicism or liberal Protestantism. They add works to faith as the basis for our righteousness before God and they bring bondage to human regulations because ultimately they are about what we do for God and not what about God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Everything that is not of God, brothers and sisters, is, is a slave system. But we are not of the slave woman. We are of the free. We are children of the free woman. We are children of the promise. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourselves to bonds of slavery. And I was thinking about, why is it that God recorded the multiple times in the, in the Exodus where the people of Israel wanted to go back into Egypt? Why do you think that story was there? Because this is the, in our hearts of flesh and sinfulness. What God has set free, for some reason... When we go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever read, that Israel wants to go back to Egypt. But what did they talk about? That, that surely it would be better because they could sit by the meat pots and have their fill of bread, the people of Israel say. In other words, it's what satisfies the belly, and we do the same thing. We satisfy our earthly desire, our fleshly desire, and it's almost like we walk back into Egypt, and we pick up the chains and shackles, and we try to strap them back on our feet again. And I was thinking about that going like, that's why that's included in the Exodus story, because it's the inclination, again, of the heart of man to go back into Egypt again. But we are children of the free woman and we must remind ourselves of such. God says to us today, stand firm. He says that in everything that you do, endeavor to remain in the freedom that you have born into and continue in that course of action, church. Don't get entangled don't get ensnared. Don't be held in slavery because that's not how I've made you in Christ. And this is where I want to ask the Spirit of God to just this morning to apply this truth to our hearts today. There are so many of us, probably each one of us in some degree or another, that have allowed ourselves to be entangled again and are, are held again captive to, in slavery. And Christ says, church, and he says to each one of us, you are free. I have made you free. 
My gospel is a gospel of freedom. Stand firm today. Turn with me quickly to the book of Romans. I want to look at just two, two sections of Romans, one in chapter 6 and one in chapter 7. I think I've told you I've, I've got these cool bookmarks. Here's one for you. Charles Spurgeon quote, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. That's a good one, right? That's a freebie this morning, you guys. Let's look at, at Romans chapter 6, and I want to begin in verse 12 and just read 12 through 14. Paul says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. grace. You are not under the law, but you are under grace. Church, if you are Christ, then he has set you free from sin. He has set you free from addictions. Christ has set you free from the power of the enemy. He has set you free from past hurts, from, from words of, of death or curse that was spoken over you. He has set you free from sins of your fathers or your father's fathers. He has set you free of your own sin that you committed before you came to him. He set you free from sexual addiction. He has set you free from anger. He set you free from, from abuse and pride, from greed, from political ideologies, from social ideologies. Church, you have been set free from any of these things that might grip your heart today. You have been born of the free woman. And I just felt like this is what God wanted to remind us this morning. As we have just seen here so logically that we are children of the free. So therefore, church, what does that look like? How now do we live? Some have been shackled by chains of materialism. Today the Lord says, live free. Do not be ensnared. And not only are we free from, but we're also free to. Now look at Romans chapter 7. Verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear the fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released, there's that freedom message from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And listen to this, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Have you ever noticed that before? So that we, what did he say? We serve in the new way of the spirit. What is this new way of the Spirit? It is freedom. And Paul is going to go on and now speak about that next week. But I'm not going to teach it today. Part two. He's going to talk about it in chapter five. 
But let me just say this, church, and here's what I want to make of this point this morning, just as a bit of a segue or, or as a beginning point, that there's no gray area in redemption. What I mean by that is this. The Lord doesn't deliver us from sin to redeem us for the law for us to live like a spiritually neutral Switzerland. There's no DMZ between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the earth. We are either to sin or we are to righteousness. So the freedom of the gospel message brings us into this new way of serving, into this new way of the Spirit, which is a way of freedom. But brothers and sisters, we don't just stand half foot in and half out. We are. And I love the language of Paul that we are now slaves to righteousness. He's going to go so far, even having spoken all about that, that we're actually, and this is for another time, I suppose, but we are actually now not just released from the law, but we are now enslaved to righteousness. But it's the right kind of slavery, right? It's the best kind. It's the kind that God has intended. And so he begins, or he, 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 he comes to this point of, how he began his entire letter in verse in chapter 1. And I, I can't remember what verse, I think it was verse 2 or verse 3, where he says that, that, that we have been delivered, that the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us from this present evil age. And then what he's going to take that idea, and he just develops it slightly more in Colossians. And he says that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So not only do we leave, live free from the present evil age, but we are now alive in order that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit. And we'll jump into that, like I said, next week. So this is what I want to ask us today, church. In your own life, what is one of the primary, or maybe it's the primary? There's no such thing as one of the primary, huh? It's either primary or it's not. What is one of the main areas of your life that you know and that you experience as being the most bound in? What is that? Think of what that is for you. Out of everything that I have said this morning, where are you bound in your life? Because Christ wants to set you free. He wants to set you free. He has, in fact, set you free, but He wants you to walk in that freedom. And to live in that freedom unto the glory of His name. Brothers and sisters, we are not of the slave, but we are of the free. Amen? May He receive all the glory from His church. From those who live according to this truth. And who understand the significance of what He has done. Where are we bound, brothers and sisters? May the Lord Jesus this morning release us in our hearts from that captivity. And may we walk in freedom and in newness of life, as Paul speaks of. So what I want to do today is I want to come to the Lord's table just with that thought. Where am I bound? And church, the Lord's table, we have speak about this time after time. It is not just representative. There is a measure of grace in these elements that are for us. And in this area this morning, I believe that this is what God wants us to do. 
I believe that God wants us to receive this morning and ingest the truth and ingest the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and dispel the lie of our hearts that says this thing is better than the freedom that is in Christ. That this thing of the flesh is ultimately what satisfies. That this is that pot of meat, if you will, that you want to keep coming back to like the people of Israel. The Lord says, no, no, no. Let me tell you of a better way. Let me tell you of the way, which is the way of righteousness, which is the way of freedom, which is the way of my spirit.